Thank you, Jamie. So, it's going to be an interesting passage today, huh? All right. Um, excited to preach on Revelation. I don't think a lot of churches do it, but then again, it is God's word, and so it must be preached. You know, one of the most vivid experiences I have as as a young believer, a young Christian, um, was being invited to this mega church uh, in in Malaysia, where a lot of my friends attended. Um, they were showing a movie on that particular day, and I was invited to attend. And it was a movie on the end times, right? The uh, movie, the church was showing this movie called A Night in a Thief. I don't know if some of you have heard of it. It's an old 1972 movie about rapture and tribulation. So as a young Christian, I watched it, and uh, at the end of it, it... uh, it was scary. It uh, brought a lot of um, fear and thoughts in me. It scared the living daylight out of me thinking about, you know, this whole idea about rapture and what if I'm left behind? You know, what if I'm those that, that are left behind uh, and suffer? So it's, it scares me, and I, I begin to question myself, too. Like, am I, am I really a believer? Do I really trust in God? Am I good enough? to be raptured. Now, if you're not familiar with the term rapture, it is a viewpoint shared by some Christians that the return of Christ will be two-faced, right? It, first, he comes for the Christian and rapture them. You know, there will be a sudden disappearance. And as you're seated in a church where half of the church, perhaps, or hopefully more of the church people, Christians, are taken up to heaven to be with God, immediately to be a disappearance. And then there will be others who are left behind. And then comes this tribulation where there will be intense persecution, suffering, you know, a lot of um, natural disasters, and then the rise of the Antichrist. And after this intense seven years of tribulation, Jesus will return again. I don't know if the second or third time now, but you know, return again with those who are raptured to judge the world. Now, this popular viewpoint, um, you know, draws a lot from the study of Revelation and also some other end-time passages. But I find, find that such reading is interesting, but at the same time, you know, it's really inconsistent and unhelpful in many ways because, you know, there's this fixation about what is happening what is going to happen in the future when we come to reading about Revelation. But that is not entirely true because a lot of Revelation talks about the present moment too, or even the moment of John, the apostles, at the island of Patmos. You know, there's this fixation and overemphasis of what is to come, but in reality, a lot of Revelation involves visions shown to John that are both present in his time and things that are yet to come. And so one pastor said, Revelation reveals how things really are now and how they will be from the time of Christ's first coming, which he came as a baby, till his second coming. So in reality, we are all living in this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. 
And so here we are introduced in Revelation to the first vision, John's vision. And his vision of the Son of Man, which we come to know as Jesus, who comes to bring hope and encouragement in his exile. But in speaking to John, he's also speaking to the seven churches. And if you know anything about the number seven, it means completion, perfection. So as Jesus is speaking to these seven churches, he's speaking to all churches. And so that is the story. That is, is what John saw, the Son of Man. And so as we look at this vision, there are a few things that we're going to talk about. First, it's the presence of trials and tribulations in our world, in our time. And then we're, talk, we're going to talk about the presence of God in our trials and tribulation. And finally, we're going to talk about the presence of God's victory over our trials and tribulation. So the presence of trial and tribulations in our world today. You know, John's introduction of, to the seven churches brings up a lot of interesting points. You know, he introduced himself, first of all, as your brother, partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance. Now you're asking, why, why did he introduce himself that way? See, for one, John understood the present moment of living in God's kingdom is filled with hardships, with sufferings, with tribulations. You know, the tribulation is already present. The sufferings is already, already present in this moment for him and for many other followers of Christ. So the tribulation is not just an event that will happen in the future, but it's already present right now. The Bible talks about signs of tribulation as an increase in false teachings, sufferings of all forms, increase in unrest, increase in natural disasters. Now, if you think about all of these things, they're already happening at the time of John, and it's continuously happening even today. So the tribulation is not something that's just in the future, all right? And certainly, Christians are not exempted from tribulations, unlike some of the theories where Christians will be raptured before any of these things happen. Now, Jesus himself regularly teaches that those who follow him will have to carry the cross of Christ. Now, they will have to suffer like him on earth. John 16, 33, this famous quote from Jesus, in this world, you will have tribulation. But then comes the hope, take heart, because I have overcome the world. When you think about what, what Claire just prayed for and what a lot of the elders have been praying over every Sunday, you know, we continue to get news from Christians around the world, Christians in China who are suffering. We get updates from them who are being persecuted for their faith, being put in prison. And there are many others, too, that we know living in the Arab world, in North Africa, those who experience great tribulations, too. And so it tells us that tribulation follows Christians everywhere we go because we live in a broken and corrupt world. And this world opposes Christ and his teachings. But not only that, tribulations will continue to intensify. More and more people will be persecuted. You know, one of the most striking statistics I, or story I read recently 
from Christianity today, and you may have read this before, it says that more Christians have died for their faith in this current century than all the other centuries of church history combined. And that is striking. It's shocking, striking, it's sad, but at the same time, it's not entirely surprising if you, if you heed the words of Jesus. But here's another thought, too. You know, one thing to know, too, is that tribulations comes in different forms. We all experience tribulation differently at times. You know, we have experienced different degrees of tribulation in our world. You think about our own nation. You know, yes, we may not be openly persecuted for our faith. It may come a time, we don't know, but, but at this point in time, we are not openly persecuted. But yet you think about the different forms of restrictions that are already imposed on us. You know, things that you can't say, you cannot say in school, or, you know, things that you cannot do in your workplace. As a believer, there are already restrictions on how you view certain people. And of course, even in our own daily lives, we all live through different forms of tribulation, different forms of suffering, because we are, as I said, living in a broken world. You know, for some people, we live through chronic illnesses. Some live to struggles of mental health, to physical disabilities. Some live in poverty. Some live to natural disasters. Some live to rise of evil and violent activities and to death. You know, for the past months, we've been praying and mourning over the senseless acts of gun violence in our nation. And I know many of us probably are thinking, like, if this will ever end, you know, when is this going to end? Is this, is this going to stop? And honestly, I don't know. I don't know the answer. But what we have seen is that, you know, each year it feels like it's, it's rising more and more. It's competing against each year. You know, there's this increase in activity. There's violence, not just in our country, but there's violence all over the world. There's a lot of sufferings going on, but, but despite of the doom and gloom, John also reminded us as Christians that we are not alone in this. We are not alone. See, suffering is inevitable for Christians in this world, but, and, and sometimes it has the tendency to create cynicism, you know, isolation in us. But yet so much of the book of Psalms teaches us that our pain, our pain is not meant to numb us or cause us to withdraw. But instead, our pain, our suffering is meant to draw our hearts up to God. You know, take Psalm 71, for example. Psalm 71 says, you have made me see many troubles and calamities. Yet you will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. That's what the psalmist says. And Dane Ortland also wrote, uh, the, the writer of Gentle and Lowly wrote, adversity is not intended to diminish our hope in God. Adversity is intended to heighten our hope in him. You know, we're brought to remember that God is all that we have and that he is enough. But not only do we have God, as, as John says here, we also have the church, if you think about it. You know, he says, I am 
with you. I'm your partner in tribulations, as he wrote to the seven churches. We're in this together. Now, though our natural senses would believe that when we do suffer, we are all alone, you might believe that you have to bear this burden on your own, but listen to what John says. He says we are all partners and participants in the tribulation in God's kingdom, and we all endure together. That's how he addresses the church. We all have our own sufferings and tribulations, yes, but while we do learn to endure our sufferings by trusting in God's strength, we also draw comfort in the presence of other believers as we are called to bear each other's burdens. As the church, as the body of Christ, we are called to be partners in our tribulations. You know, Paul made this so clear in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about, when he gives the analogy of the body of Christ. You know, in 1 Corinthians 12, he said, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Do you believe that? If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see this collectiveness, this body that Christ is talking about, that, Jesus, uh, that, John is, that Paul is talking about, and that John emphasized. We are in this together. You are not left on your own. You should not be left on your own. Now, while there are tangible ways and physical ways of supporting each other through suffering, I believe one of the biggest ways we can learn to bear each other's burden is to lift each other's burden in prayer. Now, yes, we can give money, we can come alongside someone to help physically, but yet there's this gift that we've been given, the gift of prayer, you know, that God has given to us, that we can lift each other in in prayer, as we do so regularly in, in our church, but also in our own time. We lift people up whom we don't know, Christians and brothers and sisters all around the world. You know, we may not be able to, to do much for them, but the best thing we can do is to continue to lift them in prayer, to pray for them, to call upon God to deliver them, call upon God to help them to endure. So what John is saying here is ultimately it's like, friends, you are not alone. You have the body of Christ. Let us look to each other for help. Let us remember to our responsibility as the body to seek out those who are suffering, to seek out those who feel that they are isolated, who are alone in this world or alone in their suffering. Seek them out and help them to bear their, their burdens. Then John moves on and he talks about the presence of God in our trials and tribulations. You know, as John identifies with the church as fellow sufferers in the tribulation, he also describes the vision he received from God. You know, he heard a loud voice like a trumpet giving instructions to record all that he saw in the visions to the church. Then he turned to see the voice speaking and was given a vivid description of the Son of Man. And the vision. Who is this son of man? What is the purpose of this vision? Let's look at it. You know, John's vision of the son of man can only make sense to us when we read through this. It can only make sense when we consider the passage from the book of Daniel. We have to go back to the Old Testament. 
particularly Daniel chapter 7, but also Daniel chapter 3 and 10, where they serve as important backdrop. You know, Daniel 7 described a vision that the prophet saw long before the birth of Christ. He saw a vision of four great beasts rising, and it symbolizes four great powerful kingdoms ruling over Israel. And we have the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Roman Empire. And each empire ruled with greater fear, with greater ferociousness. But then, Daniel was given a glimpse of the heavenly throne when he saw one like a son of man. And he was given, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. There is prophecy of the son of man that Daniel prophesied and saw was later fulfilled when Jesus came into this world to live, to suffer, and to die, and then was later raised to life. And this is why Jesus, at the end of Matthew, you know, we talk about the Great Commission, right? We talk about how we're called to go into the world. But before the commission is given, hear what Jesus said in Matthew 28. He says, all authorities in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's telling his disciples and us that I have been given this authority, that I am this all-powerful God, that I have been raised to life. I'm alive, and I have all this authority. I ruled over all things. And therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And then we also see, as we see this vision of man, you know, that John saw, we also saw further that this son of man is seen walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And this is huge. Again, to, to understand this, we will have to go back into a bit of the Old Testament too. But, but the lampstand, as we come to see later in the passage, it represents the seven churches. Right, the seven churches that Jamie read. But here's the thing. If you remember anything about the lampstand in the Old Testament, you'll know that the lampstand is the menorah. With This lampstand with seven prongs. And it's used in the tabernacle and in the temple. It is placed right before the curtain of the Holy of Holies. You know, there's this separation in this room covered by the curtains because God's presence is in it and no one can enter into it. But yet right before this curtain, there's this lampstand where, where it's lit, where the priest comes regularly to fill the oil so that the light will never die. But yet this, this lampstand is put there to represent God's presence for his people. Yes, there's a separation that nobody can really enter into God's presence, but yet this is a symbolic reminder that God is with his people. As, as long as this lampstand is burning, God's presence is with his people. And now, 
see this book of Revelation took this imagery of the lampstand and applies it to the church. The lampstand is the seven churches, and seven, as I say, is a number of completion. And so it applies to all churches in the world. The lampstand was the light of God in the Old Testament, but now the people of God, the church who have been enlightened by God's light, becomes the light themselves. The Old Testament lampstand was God's presence, was the light of God. But in the New Testament, because we have seen the light, now becomes the light. Remember what Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then Jesus said to his disciples who follow him in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, friends, we have the hope of Christ in this world, making a difference in, in our culture, in, in our school, affecting change, setting good examples, telling people about the love of Christ. We have the light because we have been enlightened. The light of God that we've seen from the Old Testament has been given to us as a church through Christ. And so now we shine as the lampstand in this world. And yet in our attempts to shine our light in this world, what will happen? Well, we will have pushbacks. We will have struggles. Worse still, we will be persecuted. But yet, you know, John's vision, the Son of Man, shows us that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man himself, is present, is walking among the lampstands. It means that Jesus is walking with his church. He's walking among the lampstands and we're reminded that we are not alone. Yes, we have the support of the community, but ultimately we have the support of Jesus. Jesus is with us. Jesus is present right now in this church, in all the churches. The, he's, he's present with all the people that he have died for. He's present with them, supporting them, encouraging them, helping them. So we are not alone as we have the support of the community, but we have also the support of Jesus Christ himself, the Son of Man who walks with us. He's with the church, comforting them in their sorrows. He's the church, sustaining them in their suffering. Truly, he is the God who is our refuge and strength. As Psalm 46 said, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. And who is this God? Jesus Christ. But here's one more thing I want you to see here too about this Son of Man, that this Son of Man is glorious. Consider the rich imagery here as John goes to great length to describe this Jesus. You know, when we, we read the gospel about Jesus, we see this suffering servant, this man of sorrows, the song that we just sung, this Jesus who goes from town to town preaching God's word, this Jesus who suffers, this Jesus who are rejected, this Jesus who are ridiculed, this Jesus who lives in poverty, this Jesus that we read before 
who has no majesty. But yet now we see this Jesus, this Son of Man that John saw in this vision. He is glorious. He's clothed with a long robe and with golden sash. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You know, there's so much imagery. It's so vivid here. This, it's, it's incredible. These are symbolic imageries that solidify who Jesus is and the power and the authority he has. You know, he's clothed with long robe and golden sash, a garment fitting for a priest and a king. His hair is white like wool, which identifies him with the ancient of days mentioned in Daniel 7, who was God the Father. So just as the God of Father is identified with hair like white wool, Jesus Christ himself is identified in that manner. Then Jesus comes with eyes like flame of fire to judge not just at the end of time, but also presently. He walks among the churches to inspect and to encourage them to persevere and to repent. Now we see this immediately in Revelation 2 when the church of Ephesus was rebuked for abandoning their love for God and called to repent. So even right now, Jesus is already judging and ruling. And his feet is like burnished bronze refined in a furnace to depict a conqueror who has been battle-tested, but yet victorious. His voice roars like mighty waters, which, you know what, reminds me a lot of Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan, this mighty, mighty lion who roars with authority and power. And this voice is the voice that says, let there be light, and light came to be. And then in his right hand, he rules over the seven stars, which we come to know later from the passage, as the heavenly beings, as angels who are being tasked to watch over the churches on earth. Now, God has sent his heavenly guardians to us, to the church, watching and protecting us. And he rules over these angels. And his mouth is like the double-edged sword, which, if you have read Hebrews 4, reminds us of that, that God's word is sharper than any double-edged sword, able to penetrate the most hardened hearts out there, causing them to repent and believe. And then finally, the description ends here that says that Jesus is said to be shining in full glory, like the sun shining in full strength. You think about the power of the sun. You know, you think about trying to look up at the sun, think about trying to stand in the sun for a bit. You know, immediately you feel the, the heat. You feel the power of it. But this is what it's described as Jesus being in full glory. It's like the sun in full strength. Friends, this is our King Jesus. You know, he is full of power and authority. He's this king of kings. But guess what? He walks with us. 
even if we may not see him, he is with us, with the church, because his spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is in you. This spirit of the King Jesus himself is in you, guiding you. You know, I love this prayer from St. Patrick that we read recently. I love it because it says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. Christ is with you in every single situation that you're in. He's present in you right now, seated where you are. He's present in you, and he's present with you when you leave this place, when you go home, when you go to work. He's present in you when you go to school. He's present in you when you are going through temptations, when you're tempted. He's present with you when you are being imprisoned, when you are suffering. He's present in you when you experience your daily pain and struggle. He is with you. And not only that, we see this in our last point, that the presence of God's victory is over us in our trials and tribulations. You know, this King Jesus isn't just any king out there. You know, in our world and time, we see kings who sit on throne waiting to be served. But King Jesus is different. He's a king who took matters into his own hands and delivered a victory. He's the king who goes into battle, who is right at the front of the battle. He's the king who charges at the enemy and delivers victory. And so when, when Jesus, the son of man, appears before John, his presence was overwhelming to a point where John fell on his feet like he was dead. And this is a common response of people who saw the glory of God. But yet in this vision, we see the tenderness of King Jesus in reassuring John. You know, he put his righteous and all-conquering right hand on John, like a loving father putting his arm over his son to assure him. And Jesus says, fear not, John, fear not. And as, as Jesus spoke to John, he also speaks to the church, too. He says, fear not, John. Fear not, Christians. Fear not, church. And he went on to explain why. He said, first, I am the first and the last, the living one. This connects back to verse 8 in chapter 1 that Corey preached last week. Where the Lord God himself, where the Father says, I am the Alpha and Omega. But then Jesus now is reminding us that, guess what? I am the beginning and the last. I am the Alpha and Omega too. He's reminding us of his oneness with his Father. Just as the Father is the Alpha and Omega, Jesus Christ is also the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I'm there with the Father since the beginning, and I will be there with the Father at the end. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, said Jesus is sovereign over all that comes over all time, history, and creation. And what this means then is that Jesus has this 
absolute power and is in absolute control over everything that is happening in your life. He's before time. He's before creation. He sees all things. He sees the beginning till the end because he's the beginning and the end. He sees all things. Nothing escapes his knowledge. Nothing is out of his control. Nothing is too difficult for him. There was never a time where Jesus is not present to come to our aid or to come to forgive us or to come to deliver us. And even if we are caught in a predicament, in in our sufferings, facing trials and tribulations, we can be sure that Jesus knew what was going on because he has sovereignly allowed it to happen for whatever reasons it may be. Whether it's to strengthen our faith, to help us to persevere in our sins, from, our, from sin, or to even draw us closer to him. You know, the psalmist says, before I knew you, before I, f- I formed you, I knew you. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. And here's what, what baffles me sometimes, you know, because I often forget this, but sometimes I have to remind myself that, that even in whatever situation that I'm in, everything that has happened on this earth, it's already known by God. Before I was formed, before I was alive, while I may be surprised by the things that are happening, yet they are not to God. He knew exactly what trials and tribulations we were going to face. He knew exactly what happy and joyous things we, that's going to happen to us. And so what does that mean then? It means that, that we have God who is in absolute control in every single situation, in every moment, that then we can find comfort and security knowing that God has planned my life exactly how he wants it. So Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. But then he goes on to explain further. He said, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And not only does, does Jesus direct our fears to his person, but he also reminded us of the victory his work accomplished. Jesus understood that the greatest fear we have as mankind is death. You know, when I was young, I had a conversation with my grandfather. And one day, and he told me that one day, you know, I'm going to die. He's not a believer, but he told me one day we all will die. And I was thinking about it as a kid, right? It's like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. But, I'm, but I, I believe that it's not just a kid in me who is afraid of dying. I'm sure a lot of us, even as adults, are afraid. We don't want to die. Why do we fear death? You know, to many people, it suggests the end of life, the end of us, the end of anything meaningful. It meant uncertainty. It meant chaos. It meant separation from the people we love. Death strikes that fear in us. 
and for others. We fear death maybe because we fear condemnation. Right? We know we've done terrible things in our lives, things that we're not proud of, and we feel like we will probably pay for it in the next life, whatever life it may be. But I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because Jesus says, I died. I died for you on the cross and paid for your sins. I died so that you can be forgiven. I died so that you were not condemned. There's no sin in this world is greater than the forgiveness of God through Christ. When you turn to Christ in repentance and you look to him as your savior, every sin of your past, present, and future will be forgiven. Jesus says there's no condemnation for those who look to him because I died. That's why he has to go to the cross to pay for our sins. Any doubts and fears also on the unknown will be vanquished too where Jesus not only said I died but look, look next. He says behold I am alive forevermore. Jesus not only casts out the fear of condemnation, but he also casts out the fear of death. He has conquered death, and now he holds the key to our lives. He holds the keys to death and Hades. He holds the key to our eternal life. Death has lost its sting. Death has lost its victory. We sang about this just recently. During Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ on Easter, but in actual fact, we should celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every day of our lives because what Jesus has done for us is so radical, is so monumental that it affects all of us who trust in him. It affects our lives. Think about this. Death has lost its sting. Death has lost its victory. Death is not the end of us. That is what this son of man is saying. Death is not the end of us. So we just had the, uh, the example of Chronicles of Narnia. Allow me to share an example from the Lord of Rings. You know, if you, if you read the Lord of Rings, you remember this great scene, this great quote that Gandalf said to Pippin. Remember that the battle of uh, remember at the return of the king, where Pippin said to Gandalf, uh, as as the orcs were coming in, trying had pinned them over the other side of the door and trying to break down the door, all hope is lost. And so Pippin said to Gandalf, the wizard, he said, "I didn't think it would end this way." You know, here's what Gandalf replied. He said, "End? No." The journey doesn't end here. The death is just another path, one that we all must take. The great rain curtains of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and there you see it. What do you see? You see white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. And Pippin said, well, it isn't so bad then. Yes, it isn't so bad. 
In fact, it is glorious. It is wonderful. Christians may live courageously today because of the security of tomorrow. Let me repeat that. Christians can live courageously today because of the security of tomorrow. Death has lost its victory because Christ's victory has brought us life with him in glory forever. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. Friends, what a great comfort it is to know that no trials and tribulations, however great it may be, in this world can threaten us, can threaten our security, can stop God's presence, can shield God from coming to us. Nothing, not even death, can stop God because Jesus Christ has stopped death. Jesus Christ has gained victory over death for us. And this, my friends, is the ultimate message of Revelation. You know, I know many of us, when we look at Revelation, we fear. It's like there's so much of these weird symbolism, languages, vivid imageries. But if you just understand the big picture, which I'm hoping to do on, on Wednesday, but if we only see this big picture, it's going to help us. It's going to motivate us and give us some hope here. But here's this big picture that Revelation presents to us, that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus wins over everything that has happened. We see it from the beginning of Revelation. We see it in all of Revelation, and we see it till the end of Revelation. John's vision reminds us that Jesus wins over everything that's going on in our lives. No matter how hard, how difficult our daily lives are, no matter how much we're suffering right now because of, of Christ, no matter how much our faith is in doubt, Jesus wins. And because he wins, those who follow him, those who look to him, we win. We have this victory. So death has lost its thing. Life has been given to us despite of what is going on in our world today, despite of how gloomy and how much suffering is out there, despite how much we struggle. Jesus wins. And this Jesus is present also in our lives, helping us, reminding us what he has done for us, assuring us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for your word. I thank you for this glorious picture in Revelation. You know, so much, so much of the time when we think about Revelation, we think about all these things that are yet to happen. But yet there's so much that has already happened. Ultimately, we have been given this glorious picture of Jesus Christ who has died and has conquered death and, has, and lives forevermore. And this Jesus is glorious. And yet, he's not far from us because John reveals that this Jesus walk in our midst.
He's present in our lives right now. He's with us. He's before us. He's with us. He's beneath us. He's on our left. He's on our right. He's in us. So I pray that, Lord, this would encourage us as we continue to live in our daily grind, in our daily struggles, that we would remember the presence of of Christ in us. I know the temptation, and I know Satan will continuously try to discredit Christ, will try to, to overwhelm us with his with sufferings, with temptations. But yet I pray that even in those times that we will remember that this victorious Jesus is present in our lives as we fight our battles, as we look to him to fight our battles. So we praise you and I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.